Jeff Sparrow, there's an enormous amount of ground we could cover on the subject of the Christchurch massacre, the growth of online fascist propaganda, the question of so-called toxic masculinity and alienated young men who turn into rage killers. These are complicated, not to mention very important questions, and I'd urge all our listeners to get a copy of your book to explore them further. But nevertheless, we'll try over the next 15 minutes or so to tease out a few key points. I wanted to start with the question of taking the ideas of the Christchurch mass murderer seriously. This is something the mass media in large part refuse to do. You take a different approach. Why was it wrong to, as so many commentators did, dismiss the ideas expressed in the killer's 74-page manifesto? Yeah, a lot of people in the media approached this question from a perspective where they said, uh, we don't want to encourage more of these horrific incidents and the best way to avoid that is not to publicise any details about the killer and particularly about his ideas because if we do that, we'll just be giving him oxygen. And I should say, like, you know, I have, I have obviously, I have sympathy to... Sympathy with, you know, the, the, the notion of doing whatever we can to prevent these horrific um, incidents reoccurring, um, but it just seems to me that this is the wrong way to, to, to go about it. And the argument that I make in the book is that if we are to prevent a recurrence of what was an act of politically motivated terrorism, we need to understand... Um, that motivation, and particularly in this case where the the, the perpetrator of, of the massacre laid out in, in some detail um, a program not only to not only for his own um, horrific attack, but a program for future attacks. And it seemed to me that um, we'd be foolish indeed if we didn't take this seriously when someone is explaining to you how they intend to encourage further um, acts of terrorism you foolish not to pay some attention to it so as i said i I think it's important for journalists to act with some sensitivity when they're writing about something so awful particularly given the you know the impact that it had on so many people in in christchurch but um it seems to me that that approach of sort of pretending that if we don't talk about it it's not going to happen again is um gravely mistaken you write in the introduction to your book that the christchurch massacre quote represented a particular strategic choice for the fascist movement and we'll go into perhaps uh, why you regard this killer as a bona fide fascist but that it was a particular strategic choice for the fascist movement a decision not to build public organizations but to encourage violence by previously unknown individuals acting in isolation. Tease out what you mean by that, Jeff, because it's perhaps difficult, uh, understandably so, for our listeners to appreciate how a terrorist atrocity of this kind could be part of a consciously designed political project. Yeah, so from about uh, 2016, there was an attempt in, particularly in, in Australia and the United States, for serious uh, online fascists to bring their online support off the internet and into the real world and attempts to build the kind of fascist organisations or modern versions of the fascist organisations that existed in the 20s and the 30s. And in the United States, this manifested in particularly in the Unite the Right demonstration in Charlottesville. It 
that many people will be familiar with in Australia. The scale was somewhat smaller, but we saw movements like Reclaim Australia giving birth to more or less explicitly fascist organisations like the United Patriots Front. And the point that I make is that both in Australia and in America, these attempts to build a real-world fascist organisation that could intervene in mainstream politics was decisively defeated. That so the demonstrations in both Australia and America made it very difficult for these people to organise, and it became kind of clear that by I don't know about mid 2017 that the that the, 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 the the fascist movements were not going to be able to build the kinds of um, real-world political influence that they intended. So within the movement itself, there was a strategic debate that happened between the intellectuals of, of, of fascism, where some of them said, okay, we need to just keep on trying to hold demonstrations and, and rallies, even if it's difficult, this is the only way forward for us. Alternatively, some of them said, no, we need to go back online and just just engage in online um, uh, propaganda. That's where our real strength. Into that debate, the perpetrator of the Christchurch massacre saw himself as consciously intervening. Now, he was someone who had been following both the American and the Australian fascist movement very closely. As we know, he had um, some close links with some, some of the Australian fascists in particular, and he essentially decided that both of those approaches were wrong and the way forward, he thought, was to, rather than trying to build on the ground or simply retreat to the online space, was to do an approach that kind of a combined both of them, which was to engage in real-world terrorist attacks, but to do so in a way that attempted to mobilise that online support base to carry out these kinds of um, gun massacres. Now, one of the very vexed questions which comes up again and again in the wake of these atrocities is whether or not these murderers are mentally unhinged. Are they simply deranged individuals in the throes of psychosis or are they acting, at least in their own minds and according to their own ideology, in a perfectly rational way in pursuit of a set of defined political objectives? Or is it sometimes, as appears to be the case with the Hanau killer in Germany a few days ago, a complex combination of, of factors? And where does the Christchurch killer fit in in terms of these categories? Yeah, I mean, that, that is a really interesting question. As you say, it always comes up. Um, and there's no sort of simple answer to it. As you say, the, the German perpetrator seems to have and we don't know yet, and more information will, 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 will come out, but seems to have been someone who may well have been gripped by some sort of psychosis, but at the same time, as well as expressing these um, clearly disordered thoughts, he was drawing upon a systematic body of ideas. So in, in that sense, even the psychological motivations are never exclusively um, psychological, but Christchurch is a really um, clear-cut example of this because in one sense, almost by definition, anyone who carries out something as awful as those attacks is not a normal person, You know, just in the sense that normal people do not do things like that. At the same time, I think it would be, in some ways, it makes it a lot easier to cope with thinking about something like the uh, crisis attacks to, to tell ourselves that the perpetrator was 
you know, a madman who was, you know, just acting out delusions. But in fact, when you look at his manifesto, it's a very well-researched, well-written document that, uh, that articulates, you know, a very clear understanding of the history and theory of, of fascism and puts out a, a clear political um, a clear political program. And so to simply dismiss it as the manifestation of a derangement, I think, would be comforting, but wrong. It's clearly not as simple as that. Speaking of how we categorise this phenomenon, in much of the mainstream commentary on maskers like Christchurch, there's what I would call a category error where atrocities carried out by ideologically committed fascists are lumped together with school shootings like Columbine, the Aurora Cinema Massacre and so forth. Supposedly what ties these crimes together is the common denominator of angry young white men expressing a psychotic, murderous outburst of toxic masculinity. This has always struck me as a very strange one-dimensional explanation. Nevertheless, it's undeniable the perpetrators of these crimes do indeed tend to be angry, alienated, young, white men. So how does this factor of whether you want to call it toxic masculinity and so on, how does this factor play into this dark phenomenon of fascist terrorism? Yeah, this is a really interesting um, issue. So these kind of rage massacres, these... these, these um, uh, these gun killings of the kind that were carried out in Columbine um, are a relatively recent phenomenon in American political history. That they're previously almost unknown in that form prior to about the 1960s. And in more recent decades, they've begun to happen more often and um, with greater intensity now. I mean, there are arguments exactly how you classify these things, but, you know, there are some statistics to the extent that there are now, you know, uh, gun massacres happening in America on average every two days. It's an extraordinary statistic, and the speed at which they're happening seems to be um, in intensifying. Now, as you say, the majority of these attacks are non-political or apolitical. They are, you know, carried out by... Uh, individuals who are perhaps experiencing some kind of um, bullying at school or in the workplace or something of that kind. And there's a particular script that's developed that's, that, that, that seems to provide an outlet for, for people in that situation where they start to collect guns, they write some sort of manifesto where they, they, they name the various people that you know, they have a grievance against, then they go out into a public place and they kill as many people as possible until they are killed in turn. And I think one of the things that the Christchurch perpetrator did was very consciously take this apolitical script you know, the, of the kind that we saw in the Columbine massacre and attempt to politicise it, to inject into this um, sequence of events that... Uh, that, 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 that gun killers will, will undertake before they commit their crime, um, consciously fascist politics. So he, he too started to collect guns, but on all of his guns he wrote fascist slogans. He too wrote a manifesto, but it was not just a sort of list of apolitical grievances. It was a long document about fascist history and politics. Um, and he consciously did that in... Um, because he thought that this would inspire other people to... Um, do the same. Now, to go to your other point about masculinity, well, what is it that's inspiring more and more people in America to, you know, 
to 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 think that they need to respond to you know their circumstances by going out and killing as many people as possible. Now, there's no simple answer to that, but I think one part of it is uh, that more and more people in America feel that their lives are entirely out of um, their control, that they feel atomized and isolated and um, cut off from any sort of sense of of community or society or anything of that order. And one response to a lack of perceived control is the control that comes from violence. Now, if you think about, I mean, I, I did a previous book where I, um, I interviewed um, war veterans about the experience of killing in, in predominantly Iraq, but also Afghanistan. One of the things that they talked about was that there's um, a tremendous attraction of deadly violence in the sense that when you're in the experience of, of combat, all of a sudden you see your life with total clarity. You are become you become this sort of the figure who is kind of determining all the action around you. Once you have a, a a weapon and you're inflicting violence on people, like for a brief period of time, you see everything with crystal clarity and you are totally in control of everything. And I think that that experience underpins the attraction of gun violence. Um, in America now, why is it in particular young men? Well, I think it's the, again. I think it's a complicated issue, but I think one part of it is that men and women are socialised to experience to to relate to the question of control in quite different ways. That for men, masculinity is very tied up in the in notions of power and control, such that people experience the powerlessness that is so much a part of kind of late capitalist life as an attack on their masculinity and they see that reasserting control through deadly violence is a way of reviving that masculinity. And I think women are uh, socialised into femininity into quite a different way. So um, the lack of control doesn't necessarily manifest itself in a desire for violence in quite the same way. I think that there are probably, you know... Um, other outlets um, in which that is experienced, whether it's in self-harm or, 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 or so on. So overwhelmingly, this sort of the perpetration of gun massacres tends to be a, um, a male experience and that it fits very neatly into the key fascist notion of kind of redemptive Violence, which is sort of the process, which is which is sort of how um, the Christchurch perpetrator was able to kind of appropriate this apolitical script of gun massacres into the idea of like of um, fascist terrorism. Finally, Jeff Sparrow, and unfortunately, we don't have time to really cover this particular question in the depth it requires. But speak to what is, in some sense, the elephant in the room, which you've already touched on, which is that we live in a world of increasing despair, of environmental collapse, of the end of any sense of historical progress. Increasing numbers of people, including a lot of people in my own day-to-day life, for instance, who aren't even especially political, more or less take it for granted that the world is ending, that humanity's days are numbered. In this world of multiple intersecting crises that's unfolding before our eyes, as the politics of despair take hold more and more, can we expect to see war massacres of the kind we saw in El Paso, San Diego, Christchurch, and in the last few days in Hanau in Germany. It's perhaps a very dark question to end on, but we need to face the reality, don't we, of the world we'll be confronting over the next few years. 
Yes, and I, I think that's regrettably probably the case, that unless and until we are able to articulate some kind of alternative, some sort of program that, prevent, that presents the prospect of a better world, a, you know, a, a world based on solidarity and hope and um, progress, then the politics of nihilistic despair that fascism um, incarnates is going to have an increasing attraction. So this concept of redemptive violence that's so central to fascism appeals particularly in a period in which people don't have any real hope of, you know, um, a world in which people can live in equality and harmony. And in that context, then the notion of going out in a blaze of glory, which is the way that, you know, um, these online fascists think about what they're doing is going to have an appeal to a certain kind of of person. Re- re- regrettably, now I you know I should temper this. I don't think we're not you know in Germany in 1933. And as I said before, that in some respects this 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 program of fascist terrorism is a response to the failure of the fascist movement in Australia and America of to build anything kind of real on the ground, but, you know, it's a very unstable situation. And I think we have to be kind of attuned to the, to the real dangers that, 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 that um, lie ahead. And unfortunately we saw in Christchurch, the, the carnage that can be committed from by merely one individual with access to high powered weapons. So, you know, it's in, incumbent on us to do whatever we can to prevent this from taking place in the future.